It's great to be back together with you as we dive into 2 Samuel. Um, I, we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4 today. Um, some challenges there as we look at that, but there's some truths that God has for us. I, uh, Jenna has taken us off to a great start, and so it's a real privilege just to pick up and to move forward from where she left off. You know, one of my favorite summer activities is to go bike riding. I've always loved riding bike, um, but it took on a, a little bit of a difference when we moved from very flat Minnesota to hilly Pennsylvania. And I say that I've come to kind of appreciate some of the challenges of hills around here. Um, but there is one route that Jeff and I sometimes bike, and at the very end of it, there's a very substantial hill. And in my mind, I kind of like to think of it as Mount Everest. But I don't think it probably has the 90-degree incline that I imagine it to be. But it never fails that when I part way up that hill, I always start to think, I hate bike riding. Now, I think sometimes life is like that. There's something that we love, but on occasion, something comes along that challenges our typical understanding. And there's the possibility of that happening today, I think, as we look at these passages. Because there are so many passages in the Bible that we find so encouraging and that we love to go back to and read them over and over again. We think of like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we can go to Psalms 34.4, and we say, you know, submit to the Lord, and um, he answered me, and he delivered me, and he took away my fears. Verses like that, they, they stir within our hearts, and they make us rejoice. And then we read our passage today, and we read, after they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. And that's not something you're going to frame and put up in your house. And I think the reality is that there are some really challenging and might I even say disturbing images that come up in these chapters in 3 and 4. But it's part of the reason that I think that a lot of people just tend to skip over this book. It's easier that way. And it might like leave you wondering, like it did me, why is so much inspired ink spilled out on stories such as this? And to get that, I, I understand that because I have that sentiment as well. But it's wrong to skip over these sections. Because God always has something to tell us, even in the messiness of what's going on. There are truths to grasp here today that God is at work even when things are not what they should be. And we certainly see that in these passages. Our passage here, it deals with David's rise to power. When King Saul, David's predecessor, was alive, David was content to wait for that promised succession to the throne. Even though that waiting was difficult, he did it. Now at this point, Saul is dead. And we find that it's even more painful as David is waiting to rise to the throne over all of Israel. And so we're going to see some contrast here in terms of what do you do when you wait? Do you ever have trouble waiting? I think we all do. And, and as we look at this today, we're going to see the contrast between taking matters in our human hands versus waiting on God's timing. So I'd like to just quickly catch us up and, and review about the political situation that we're stepping into. And I've made a little cheat sheet here, if some of you can see it, if that's helpful, as we kind of walk through our passage today. 
Um, so there's a civil war, as you recall, going on in Israel right now. There's a tribe of Judah who has King David, um, and he's reigning over that in the southern Israel. And there are 11 other tribes in northern Israel that have recognized Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth. Um, you know, and we need to really give him like a nickname, but Ishbosheth as the king. And in other words, there are two rival kings over God's people. And when you think about that, what could possibly go wrong in this, in this passage today when you have these two rival kings? But there are other couple of key players, too, that we need to know about. And the first is Joab, and this is David's military general, we could say. It's his right-hand man. He's been with David for a very long time, and he's been extremely faithful to David. He's fought in a lot of battles with David. And on the other side, you have Abner. Now, what Joab is to David, Abner was to Saul. He's the military general on the other side. And upon Saul's death, he steps, steps into what was kind of a vacuum, um, and he manipulates and he sways 11 tribes to follow sons, um, Saul's son, Ishbasha. And however, he's been a very weak leader. So basically, Abner, um, we, we would say that um, Ishbosheth Ish, is just a puppet king to Abner. So as you can surmise, there's going to be some tension brewing between these two military generals, between Joab and between Abner. So let's see how this plays out when we start at the beginning of chapter 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now remember that David is a man after God's choosing. And this was in contrast to Saul, who was a man after the people's choosing. So naturally, we're going to see God's favor is resting on David through the kingdom, even though that it's not fully recognized yet, the full kingdom. And as the civil war in Israel rages on, David is biding his time. He knows that God's going to keep his promises, that ultimately he's going to establish him on the throne according to his purposes and to his timing. And then in verse 2, with the action barely underway, the action stops suddenly. And it stops abruptly with kind of this random genealogy that we see here. It's kind of like when you're watching a great movie and the commercial comes on, like for Burger King or dog food, or Burger King that tastes like dog food, and it's a really you know, a bad commercial. Well, that's kind of what we're going to see here because it's not going to get any better. Because what we see here is it reveals something very unsavory about the weak side of David. So in verse 2, I'm just going to summarize here, we see a list of six sons that were born to David while he was in Hebron. The first was Ammon by Anahinam. The second was Kiliab by Abigail. The third son was Absalom, who was the son of Makkah. The fourth was Adonijah, who was the son of Haggith. The fifth is Shephatiah, who's the son of Abital. And the sixth as Ephraim, who's the son of David's wife, Eglah. So what do we notice immediately as we read that genealogy? We have six sons to six different wives who were born during this seven-year reign in Hebron. Now this represents just the firstborn son, so you can imagine that there are many other children as well. And this also doesn't include David's first wife, Michael, or the multiple wives and concubines that are going to come later. 
So the question comes up, what are we to do with all of these lies? Well, kings of other Near Eastern nations would multiple, multiply wives as a, a show of their power. And wives were often taken during this time for political reason, for forming alliances through marriages. But it's important to note, as you saw in your homework, that this wasn't how God's kings were supposed to act. God clearly set a standard for marriage in his original design in Genesis 2.24, and that has always been God's plan. And God also gave some very specific instructions for kings, the kings of Israel, and we see that listed in Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, where we read, the king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And we see that David is acting in the exact opposite of what God has commanded for the king of Israel to do. And so knowing this, we might wonder, why doesn't the narrator condemn polygamy here? Instead, we find that the scripture just simply states the facts. And it lets the story tell the tale of David's undoing because of his sin. David's determination and his strong will to do what he wanted, well, it's going to actually show a trail of heartache that leads to so much chaos and destruction in the years ahead, not only in this generation, but in generations to come. So we certainly see that David isn't flawless, and we're reminded here all over again that David is not the hero of the story because he's morally upright, but rather he's the hero because God has chosen to use him to accomplish his purposes. So while David's sin may be feel, it, it may feel deeply disturbing and distressing to us, it also shows that God can use people despite their imperfections. God can use people despite their imperfections. And you know, that should be a great encouragement to us ladies. Because which one of us could ever be used if perfection were the benchmark for God to use us? Well, in verse 6, we see that this interlude is over, and we plump quickly jump back into the action. And we read, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine by the na name of Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Now we start to see dissension in the ranks of the house of Saul. Now remember that Abner had supported Saul's son, Ishbosheth, as king, so that he could be the power behind the throne. And as time goes on, Abner continues to increase in his power and his strength and in his influence. And now Ishbosheth steps up and he accuses Abner of double-crossing him and of backstabbing him and of taking the deceased king's concubine. And in doing this, this is really tantamount to vying for the throne. So it's really treason that we're looking at. Look at verse 8. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, am I a dog's head on Judah's side? Um, that dog's head on Judah's side, that's really just a Hebrew expression. Um, it denotes something that's low or disgusting or, content, or, contentable, or um, contemptible. So really he's saying, am I a contemptible traitor? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David yet. Now you accuse me of, of offense involving this woman. 
this response that Abner gives, it doesn't really tell us whether he's guilty or not of this. It's possible that Ishbosheth was feeling threatened by Abner's growing power and his influence, so maybe he felt him set him up and he invented this to kind of get rid of Abner. We don't know, but what we do know is that Abner's power is growing and that he, is an, he has a very elevated view of himself. Um, he's not a man showing much humility, and we'll see that as we continue on in this, this passage. And there's something else going on here as well. The alliances are shifting. Look in verse 9. Abner continues his rant. May God deal with Abner, be it so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised, his, promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. If you look at that map in the back of your homework book, you'll notice that Dan is in the very northern region of Israel and that Beersheba is in the very extreme south. So he's, he's just referencing the entire land of Israel. So in this statement, we see that clearly Abner knew that David was God's choice to be the king over all of Israel. Yet, it's interesting, he thinks that God needs help in making this happen. Verse 9, I will do for David what the Lord promised. So here we see one of the deadly features that we're going to see throughout this passage that taking matters into one's own hands rather than waiting on the Lord, we're going to see happen over and over here. I don't think waiting comes easy to any of us. It's the daily decision to say, God, I trust you, and I'll obey, even though the circumstances of my life are not turning out necessarily the way that I want them to. Perhaps, You've been dreaming of certain things that you'd love to accomplish that may be related to your work or to your family or to your marriage. And for reasons you don't understand, you've always, what you've hoped for, it's just not happening in your life. And you don't know why. So you're tempted to either try to force it on your own or else just to give up and not to realize that the potential that God has given you. So I'd ask, would you have the patience to neither force it nor to give up, and instead to just prayerfully wait on God's timing. In verse 12, we see that Abner is defecting to David, but it's not because of the purpose of supporting David or for his love of God or for his desire to see God's side come through and to become powerful not like what we saw when, with Jonathan, but rather it's just a purely selfish political drive that Abner is going after. Abner likes to refer to God's promises when it's convenient, but then he ignores them to serve his own purpose. He was a very pragmatic politician. He was a shrewd general. His basic principle was always join the winning side. And when you, he could perceive that Ishbosheth, that his future was not going strong, and so he defected to David's side, and we're told that King Ishbosheth was not strong enough to stand up to Abner. And with Abner turning his attention toward David, we see that there are some negotiations that are going to be coming into view. So look at verse 12 and 15. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all of Israel over to you. 
Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, with you when you come to see me. Then David sent messages to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So that Ishbosheth then gave orders and had her taken from her husband, Paltio, and the son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back home. Now, as these negotiations begin, do you ever wonder why the return of Michael was the condition of all future negotiations? If you were here for the study of 1 Samuel 18, you'll recall that Michael is Saul's daughter and that King Saul had required the bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins to be taken in battle to get the hand of his daughter in marriage. I actually taught that lesson back then. I thought we were done with the foreskins, but here we are again. <laughs> so, so, David, so David doubles that bride price, actually, to establish himself as a mighty warrior, and he's given Michael um, by Saul in marriage. However, King Saul took her away to spite David and gave her to another man. So here we are now, 10 years later, and David is insisting on getting Michael as his wife again. And I think as much as we would wish to say that this is all about love, in reality it's about ancient diplomacy. Because in claiming the daughter of Saul, David is also claiming all of the kingdom. So, and also it's important when Abner brought Michael to David, it was also a public announcement on his part that he had broken from the house, house of Saul and that he was no longer a general under Ishbosheth. So let's go to verse 17 and where we see the negotiations continue. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time you have wanted to make David your king, now do it. <clears throat> Actually, I love this. Abner says, get with it. Quit talking about making David your king and crown him over the whole land now. Abner argued and he negotiated with the 11 tribes and he said, now is the time to give the king of our own choosing to give up that king and to crown David who God has appointed as king. <clears throat> the theologian Charles Spurgeon often spoke of this text and he referred to it as a now then do it passage. And he spoke to the urgency, not in the relationship of crowning an earthly king, but he spoke to the urgency of deciding who is going to be the king of your life now and for all of eternity. Because to choose Jesus Christ as the king of your life is the most important decision that you're ever going to make. We all know the brevity of this life. We don't know the number of our days and what's ahead. So life can be short. Therefore, do it now. Stop negotiating and get busy making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. In verse 20, when Abner, <clears throat> we read, when Abner had 20 men with him, he came to David at Hebron, and David prepared a feast for him and his men. David shows himself to be very wise and generous toward his former adversary. A lesser man would never have forgiven Abner for leading an army against God's chosen king. But David was wise, and he wanted to move forward with unity, with the focus on the kingdom, rather than looking at his own personal agendas and vendettas. 
So in verse 21, we read, Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all of Israel for my lord the king, so that you may make a covenant with you, that you may rule over all of your heart's desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now David promises Abner peace. However, we see that that peace is not going to last very long at all. When we find Joab, David's military general, when he returns, Look at verse 22, just then David's men and Joab returned from the raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and he said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and to observe your movements and to find out everything you are doing. I think there are at least some fairly good reasons why Joab doesn't trust Abner. Now remember, just from last week, there's a battle between the two armies of Joab and Abner. Ashahel, who was Joab's brother, if you recall, was pursuing Abner at the end of that battle, and Abner kept saying, stop. Stop, stop following me. And he didn't. And so Abner ended up killing Ashahel. <clears throat> and as you can imagine, Joab is still lamenting his brother's death. And he's he desires revenge on Abner because of that death. In addition, I think Joab fears that Abner is deceptive, that he's a double agent working on behalf of Ishbosheth, and that with no intentions of actually turning the kingdom over to David. Maybe I've seen too many spy movies, but, you know, that seems to make actually a great deal of sense, too. And also, <clears throat> in addition, if that weren't enough, Joab is also suspicious that Abner, having been a top-level military general in Saul, the house of Saul, that he may very well be vying for his own position in David's army. So needless to say, when Joab returns and receives the news that David had this feast for Abner, his anger erupts and he rebukes King David. Joab could not fathom how David could let Abner come and go in peace. So it's interesting that David doesn't really correct Joab or stop him. This should at least be insubordination, if not worse. But keep in mind that Joab is David's nephew. So some family dynamics may come into play here as well. Apparently, executing family members wasn't highly thought of back in those days either. So the story just kind of moves on. But it doesn't move on in a good way. Because we see in verse 26, when Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner, they brought him back from Sistron to Sarah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him and aside into an inner chamber as to speak with him privately and there to avenge the bl bl blood of his brother Ashahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. So Joab together with his brother they deceived Abner both of them are nephews of David they deceived Abner and they brought him back to Hebron and they took him to an inner room and they murdered him. Everything about this death is wrong and we're left wondering, what is David going to do when he finds out about it? How is he going to address it? Will he rejoice that his rival commander has been killed? Does he consider this to be God's 
way of giving him the kingdom. Perhaps he's thinking, I didn't harm him personally, but I guess God took care of things for me. No, none of those are David's response. David wants it known that he's not responsible for this evil that has been done. And we see that in verse 28. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. Because you see, David did not want his kingdom to be established by violence. So David not only condemns the act of violence, but he also condemns Joab. And he, and he tells his army to mourn over Abner and to attend the funeral. In verse 31, then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the briar. Now a briar is a stand that you carry the casket on when you take it to the burial site. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. <clears throat> and we see, as David had done for both Saul and for Jonathan, he wrote an official eulogy to honor the dead commander, Abner. In verse 33, the king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as a lawless die, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. This simply means that Abner came willingly um, to Joab, but that he had been killed and he had been deceived by these wicked men. So all the people wept over him, and in verse 36, all the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. Now David has gone to great lengths to establish his innocence in the death of Abner, and he mourns, he laments, he fasts, not just in show, but really in heartfelt remorse. And seven times in verses 31 through 7, 37, we read all the people. The vibe of the people towards David is being emphasized. The people are pleased that the king's demonstration of his innocence in his mourning over Abner. And in verse 37, we see, so on that day, all the people there and all of Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. This verse is really significant here because it shows that not just the people of Judah, but all the people and all of Israel were made aware of David's innocence in the death of Abner. And this is so important because Abner could have been, being, being that Abner was a general of Saul, it would not be a stretch to accuse David of aggressively trying to take over Ishbosheth's kingdom and throne by secretly having Joab murder Abner. But I think, honestly, David is really quite exasperated over all of this when you look at verse 38. Then the king said to his men, Do not you realize that the commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am an anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruiah, that's Joab and his brothers, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. David wants to see unity in Israel. He doesn't want to see further division. And again, we see his confidence in waiting on God's hand to move in God's timing according to God's purposes. He's demonstrating he doesn't just want to take matters into his own hands to move his throne along. And we have just have one more scene in today's lesson. And that's going to be with Ishbosheth. And I wish I could say we could take, turn a corner and we're going to see some happy things ending. But you know, this is no Hallmark movie. And things don't get any better. 
So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all of Israel became alarmed. Now, if we, you recall, we left David back in Judah, and he was troubled over the position that Joab had put him in after the death of Abner. But even with that embarrassing circumstance, David doesn't lose heart, and he remains confident, and he remains a very skilled leader. But if we look at Ishbosheth, he was never more than a puppet in his commander's hands, and now his general is dead. He hadn't gained the, the, the loyalty among his troops. They were only loyal to him when they thought he was strong and he had the ability to keep the throne of Saul. But now the people in the tribes of, the king, of his kingdom know that Abner is dead, and that most likely means that the end of his reign is coming soon because they can see that his weaknesses are now exposed. And then we see in verse 4, we read this. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, she fell and became disabled, or he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now it appears that we just have this other interlude where we're just quickly made aware of the fact that Saul just has one remaining living heir to the throne, and this was a, a crippled boy by the name of Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan, and we're going to study actually more about him in chapter 9 as David keeps a promise that he made to Jonathan. But it's interesting that it's just a little interlude that we're giving, just mentioning his name. And then in verse 5, <clears throat> we're introduced to two men who are minor officers in Abner's army. They are made out um, themselves. They, they want to assume that they're going to do something really good for David. So we read in verse 5, Now Rechab and Benign, the sons of Remon and Barathite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get something to, as if they were going to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rahab and his brother Benign slipped away. The brothers made an excuse to go into the house to sub, uh, under the disguise of getting some food for their men. And the king is taking a siesta. He's not guarded, and they just simply go in, and they kill him. And it gets worse. In verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord, the king against Saul and his offsprings. Now the brothers thought they were going to score big points with David. They smile as they enter, and they're saying, David, this is the rival king. This is the man that troubled you, and here is proof that he is not dead. And as David hears these words, and he sees what's in front of him, he's not rejoicing. I actually believe he was more nauseated, not because of the severed head. He had seen that before. Rather, it was the wickedness of these two men. And David sees right through their self-serving motives. In verse 8, we see two things that display that wickedness of these men. First, it's their phony talk. The Lord has avenged my Lord. You can almost hear the drip of self-righteousness in their speech. Oh, David, we're the servants of the Lord, and here's the righteous judgment 
upon Ishbosheth. But David says, You thugs, you aren't messengers of God at all. You did this for one reason. You were hoping for a reward with money or with fame or with position in my army. And then, secondly, David may have been nauseated because of the words they used to describe Saul in verse 8 the son of Saul, your enemy. And if you remember back to chapter 1, David, when David received the news of Saul and Jonathan, who had died in battle, he certainly didn't rejoice over that, at the news that this man had been killed, the one who had been trying to kill him for so many years was dead. No, David wept, and he mourned for the king and his best friend. And he composed a song of a beautiful lament, giving tribute to the king, and he overlooked many of Saul's glaring faults, but he did praise Saul for those good things that he could find as well. <clears throat> and now David makes it very clear to these two brothers that the same fate that came to the, um, the a person that delivered the news in chapter 1 is also going to come to them. So David once again wants to make it very crystal clear that he did not have anything to do with the murder of Ishbosheth. So David continues to wait on the Lord in his timing for the throne. He's not pushing it. He doesn't need these thugs to step in to try to make things happen. And in verse 9, David responds to Rahab and his brother Benign as he says, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble? When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziglag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Now you could certainly say these men got what was coming to them, but it also appears rather excessive to cut off hands and feet and hang corpses. It seems somewhat vindictive and cruel, but it might not be what it looks like on the surface because there's a very important reason why David did this. The standard practice in the ancient world was that when one dynasty ended, when their power ended, they would kill everyone from the old dynasty. Under those kinds of rules, everybody who had any genetic tie to Saul would be murdered. Sons, daughters, nephews, nieces, cousins, all relatives would be killed so that there wasn't anyone to challenge the new dynasty. David, in doing this, rather dramatic act of execution in such a public way as letting everyone know, hands off the house of Saul. It's not going to be standard procedure where everyone from a prior dynasty is eliminated. And it's interesting because of this custom in the ancient world, King Saul had actually made an unusual request of David. When David was fleeing from Saul back in 1 Samuel 24, David had an opportunity to kill Saul but he didn't do that. And at one point, Saul is repentant, and he's weeping before David, and, David sa and Saul says this. He says, David, I know that you're surely going to be king over all of Israel someday. Promise me that when that time comes, you're not going to wipe out all of my descendants. 
And David says, I promise. Then Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 20, requested the similar oath from David. And David said, I promise. So right here, we see David making good on those promises. No more murders in the house of Saul. Well, I warned you that this passage would get messy. And there's a sense in which you might think, good heavens, I thought the Bible was supposed to be uplifting. And it goes back to that original question, why is so much inspired ink used on chapters like this? And I think it goes back to understanding that this is the real world, that God does not lift himself out of the messiness of this world, but rather he brings, him he brings himself straight through the middle of it. And he brings his grace to work redemptively in those less than ideal circumstances. And these chaps are, are an example of how scripture presents not the best world or the ideal world, but it presents the real world. And in the midst of all that messiness, we see that God is maintaining favor with an imperfect king like David to accomplish his purposes through him. And ladies, you know that's great news for you <clears throat> and for me. Because you see, God desires to do his work through all of us. And you might say, you don't know my family. You don't know my marriage. You don't know my relationship practices. You don't know my workplace. But what I do know is God's mission works within humanity. And he works in spite of our weaknesses. You might be tempted to think, if only my circumstances were different, God could do something. Nope, that's the wrong conclusion. Because God is doing something through your circumstances. Don't lose heart and don't give up, because there's nothing so messy that God can't redeem for good. There's nothing so messy going on in your life that God can't redeem it for good. Submit your ways to him. And he will meet you in your need, wherever you are right now. Let's pray. Dearly Father, <clears throat> I praise you for your faithfulness. I praise you that you have redeemed us from adversity, that we can trust you to meet us wherever we are, whether it be in the messiness of our lives or elsewhere that you will always be with us, working in us, working in our lives, working in our circumstances, and there is nothing that you cannot redeem for your good in our lives. And for that, we are so, so grateful. We ask that you go before us to our groups. We thank you ahead of time that you will bring insight into our discussions. We thank you for this time that we can be together and that we can study your word. In Jesus' name.